0: What I really want to do is to give you um, a big picture, kind of a guide and a, um, and a goal of what you want to produce from your home. Parenting is driven, obviously, by obedience to God's Word. And from a practical standpoint, parenting should be driven by goals, informed by the Word of God. Okay, And, um, and if mom and dad agree... Um, to the answers to the questions we're going to go through. If you are on the same page of either the, the answer to the questions and even the importance and the relevance of the questions, that removes so much um, uh, misunderstanding and conflict and difficulty in parenting uh, because I think probably what we all have in common in this room is an understanding that parenting teens is a little bit difficult. Amen? Amen. All right, we're all in the right place, good. Um, But mostly I want you to be encouraged this morning. Um, I'm not trying to burden you with burdens too difficult to bear. I'm not hoping you walk out of this room and say, I am a terrible parent, or walk out of this room and say, I can never do all of that. Let's just agree we can never do all of that, right? Are we okay with that? Okay. Okay. Please understand that. Um, I want you to be encouraged because I'm going to put labels and verses on much of what you already probably know and what you're probably already doing. We're just going to put labels on it, and I think you should be encouraged by that. Okay? So I want you to, um, um, if, if much of what we talk about, you're just affirmed in what you're doing, be encouraged by that. Stay the course. Excel still more. In those areas where you say, wow, I hadn't even thought about that or that's a completely different way um, to um, understand that or or to work through that issue, praise the Lord, um, take it home. But please do not this afternoon go home and change your entire parenting. Um, It is a way to frustrate your children, and it also tends to send a bunch of teenagers looking for, who is this Chris Hamilton joker? He just ruined my life. Okay? Okay. There are seats up here. If you, um, if you have seats available, can you raise your hand? Okay, yeah. There's lots of seats. Come on in. Okay? I might do that a few more times. All right. If you are, how many of you have children, but they are not yet teenagers? Okay, these are the really wise people in the room. Okay? They're figuring this out um, before they get there. Um, and that's good. If you are parenting teens, or you will be parenting teens, and that covers all of you, your role as a parent is changing, and it's going to change at an accelerated pace. It will continue to change, and it should change. That change is not something to fear. It's not something to avoid or prevent. It's something to embrace and to drive the process. Um, It is a God-ordained change, and I think you'll see this morning that the Bible's helpful in managing that change. And we always want to start with Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a what? Gift Gift from the Lord. Don't ever forget that. They are a gift um, from, from a kind and loving God. They are a gift to you. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So there's a stewardship and a care, protection, preparation, and then you let them go. You've heard the phrase that children are on loan from, from God and we understand that, but I'm telling you the transition that's coming when you pay that loan back, when you let them go, it's a very difficult transition in the best of circumstances. If your children are teenagers or about to be teenagers, you are facing an upcoming transition. And I'm going to state some obvious things here just to get us all on the same page. You're going to go from completely dependent children to completely independent children. You're going to go from a full nest to an empty nest. You're going to go from a guy who's married to a wife to a guy who's married to a grandma I don't know how that happened. Well, wait, wait, wait. I do know how that happened. First of all, I don't want you to lose confidence in the teacher. It happens, and it happens fast, uh, meaning that your children are going to be parents, and that might frighten you, and maybe it should. That's maybe why you're here. You're going to transition from ever-present children to occasionally um, present adults. All of these are transitions that are coming. They're, your children are going to transition from being a member of your family to having their own family unit. And for your sons, leading their own family. It's inevitable, it's by God's design. The close family unit is coming to an end. And I don't mean that as, um, wow, we're all going to walk out of here depressed this morning. That's exciting. It is exciting. Um, and some of you have been through that transition. Ann and I have. Um, it is fun. Okay? So your marriage needs to be ready for that transition. And that's a subject of a different session. Today, your parenting needs to be um, part of that transition. And that's what we're going to talk about. Your goal is that the transition that's coming in your home is not startling, it's not surprising, it's not unexpected, and it doesn't just happen, okay? It's, the, the goal here is for you to start thinking about how can it be purposeful, planned, pleasant, and even fun, okay? There should be an urgency in your parenting if you're parenting in uh, uh, teenage children, and I know you feel that, If it wasn't felt before, the closer you get to the finish line, the more you will either feel the anxiety of time running out or the joy of a job well done. Whichever one that is, there will always be some nagging regrets about failures. There's no avoiding that. We're human. We make mistakes, okay? So the gap from childhood in your home to adulthood outside your home should be very small. Okay. Think about that statement. If you've been to London and you ride the, t- is it the tube, all you hear the, the whole time is mind the gap. right? Mind the gap. What are they talking about? The gap between the train and the station. And what you have to do is not fall into the gap. And the, the goal is to make that gap as close as possible. And so the purpose of our discussion this morning is for you to mind the gap anticipate that the train's coming into the station and that the difference between um, what's happening in your home from the standpoint of independence, um, responsibility, consequences for decisions, whatever that is, at the end in your home is very close to what it will be outside your home. Whether your children leave to go to college or they leave to get married or they leave just to leave, That leap from what's going on in your home to what they experience outside of your home from a responsibility and an independent standpoint should be as small as possible. And I want you to consider how to do that. The leap from the confines and the rules and the control that you have in your home to the freedom and responsibility outside your home um, can um, be easy or it can be a huge chasm. Okay? And I know you want to serve your children well. A young person who leaves the home having never experienced the interchange between freedom, independence, and responsibility are at a huge disadvantage. Ann and I have been involved in youth ministry our entire, uh, almost our entire um, married life. And we see people, that, young people that get into college and suddenly nobody cares when they get up in the morning. We went through this with our daughters. We didn't know whether they got up in the morning. We didn't know what time they got home. We didn't know who they were spending time with. We didn't know if they were going to movies or watching TV or anything else. Okay? That's the transition I'm talking about. From the other side, um, we see all the time college kids that go into that environment and they go wild. Because they've never experienced that freedom. They've never experienced um, that independence, that responsibility to make those decisions in their life because mom and dad controlled everything right up until the day they walked out the door. Some children do well um, experiencing that, some don't. Another aspect to think about is a young person who has not felt the consequences of immature immature and bad decisions is at a great disadvantage. You may have shielded them from consequences, but life is going to come hard and fast, and you all know that. Life is merciless. (laughs) It's harsh. Consequences like facts are, are stubborn and difficult teachers, but very effective, and all of that is best learned at home. So today we're going to talk through eight questions. Six are about your children's or your child's preparation and readiness for adulthood outside your home, two are about your preparation for the future, and all of this is about parenting. And mom and dad, if, you, if there's any homework today, it's that you need to talk about all of this before you implement anything. Mom and dad need to be on the same page. I would, you need to run this race together. These questions are posed as thought provocation. Discussion, provocation, evaluation. I know that there are single parents in here. I know that that's a difficult situation. And I still say as much as possible, mom and dad need to be on the same page, if possible. Um, So I'm going to throw a lot at you. And I want you to take notes. I don't want you to miss the big picture. But I'm going to give you a lot to dig into later to think about. Okay? Eight questions. Let's jump into the first one. The first question is, do you understand that you cannot save your children? Do you understand that you cannot save your children? I think most of you would say, of course I understand that. But we're going to think about this for a little bit, the implications on your parenting. Many parents during the teen years become intensely aware, like never before, that their son or daughter has rejected the gospel. And I know some of you are in that place right now. This is usually because behavior and the consequences for behavior become more intense and more visible in the teen years. It's startling reality, and parents react to it in several ways. A lot, some parents say, "But he prayed the prayer. I know he's saved, and I'm not going to ever let anybody tell him he's not." That's one reaction. Some feel like, I did everything I was supposed to do. It's not fair. My child's not saved. There's grief, there's denial, there's anger. Anger sometimes even um, on the level of rejection of that child. Because the child has rejected Christ. And while that's understandable on one level, that's wrong. That's losing sight of the truth that you and I cannot save anyone, including ourselves. God does that, right? Very, very important. I've heard some parents say the equivalent of why has God forgotten me? There is tremendous grief um, in these years from parents whose ch- children have openly or even subtly rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. Your parenting, if you're in that place, your parenting is measured by God, um, by your obedience to God. That's the measure of how God evaluates your parenting. Are you obedient? Your child is measured in the same way. Parenting is the process of urgently training them in the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience, repentance, and praying like crazy for what? Their salvation. There is the edge. You cannot go any further. The Lord does that. Have you done that? Then you're obedient. And you trust the Lord for the rest. You might grieve over your child's soul, but you can have the peace and the joy of knowing that with imperfections you have obeyed the Lord. Be encouraged by that. If a goal is something you could potentially achieve, then it is not a realistic goal that your children are saved. Think about that. That's a hard statement. If you define a goal as something that you can achieve, then it is not an appropriate goal of your parenting to have Christian children. It's hard truth. There's also grace in that truth that the Lord does that. Salvation is the hope and prayer of, of parenting, but it is not something you can achieve. Think about your own salvation. Romans 10:9. You're probably very familiar with it. Listen to the personal pronouns. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Does that say anything about your parents being involved in your salvation? That's you and the Lord. That's where that transaction happens. The same for your children. Evaluating the success of your parenting Or the lack of success of your parenting based on the salvation of your children is to base that evaluation on something that God does you don't do. Many parents labor under terrible guilt, sadness, a sense of failure for all the wrong reasons. Some parents gloat and take pride in the salvation of their children. I'm a good parent because all my kids are saved. I would call that foolish pride right? Wouldn't you? That is stealing glory from God. That is somebody I don't want to be standing next to. They're taking what God did and saying, I did that. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. There are seats up here if you want. If, there, if you have seats next to you, can you raise your hands? Good. Come on in and fill it in. Thank you. And I have to make an observation. Some of the best parenting I've ever seen is the work of parents who have children who have rejected the gospel and they love their children anyway, and they continue to teach them the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience, and they demonstrate it in their life, and they love their children, and they pray for their children, and they grieve over the soul of their children. That's parenting. That's hard. And if that's you, um, that's hard. If you know somebody like that, pray for them. One other observation before we go to question number two. We need to be careful about making salvation a matter of obedience to mom and dad. Another um, hard truth, that is adding to the gospel. And the Bible speaks very clearly about doing that. That is not a good thing to do. Salvation is not a matter of obedience to mom and dad. That is a reconciliation and a transaction between God and your child. And you can encourage it, you can pray for it, you can talk about it, and you should. Um, But to make it a matter of obedience, and we've seen this in our years of involvement in high school ministry and college ministry, of when a child makes the decision, I'm not buying this, or I'm not saved, They have this. If they have a good relationship with their parents, it is a it is a a double loaded issue because now they are rejecting mom and dad, as well as Christ. And you might say that's a good thing. That prevents them from rejecting Christ. Go back and remember what you know about the gospel. That's not part of the gospel message. Okay, and what it starts to look like is rebellion and it creates all kinds of difficulty. And why am I talking to you about this? Because I want you to anticipate all this. And think about how um, you are viewing the salvation of your child and how you're viewing even your own parenting. Your love cannot be conditioned on their spiritual condition. In fact, the Bible makes clear that we are to pray for and to love those who are Unsaved, and I would say that would especially apply to our own children, wouldn't it? Trust the Lord. Pray for your children. I I'd like to just stop and do that right now. I get a sense that uh, some of you are in the middle of this, so let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for our children. Lord, we humbly acknowledge and even joyfully acknowledge that you save. Lord, we understand that we cannot save our children, but that you can. And, Lord, I pray for each of the families represented here and each of the children represented here. Lord, if it's your will, would you save them? Would you bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we could experience the joy of that type of unity with our own children? Lord, we trust you, we love you, and we leave that to you. And I just pray that you would help each of us in our parenting to do what we're called to do, be obedient to you um, as, as we pray for our children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Question number two. Question number two. The first question is, do you know, do you understand that you can't save your children? And I know that's, that's the heavy one. Okay. Number two, do your children know that God created them? And you say, this is another Sunday school question with a Sunday school answer. This is a profound question. The answer to this is, the the point of bringing this up is, your children, before they leave your home, need to understand that God created them. And I want to show this to you. And when I say, do they know, I mean, do they really know? Not as a theory, but as an undisputed fact, immovable truth. Do they know the implications of it? Do they understand that everything flows out of this truth, that God created them? In Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Maybe the most profound verse in all of the Bible. Because but for that action of our Creator, we would not be here. And the profundity of that concept, if, if we were to, we could spend a whole session um, just pondering that, it goes along with Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Unfortunately, I don't think I have to say much for you to understand. Our culture is completely rejecting that truth. There is one implication right there. It is not a question about whether there's only two genders. The creator said it. Of course, you know, I haven't delivered babies, but I'm pretty sure when you deliver a baby, you know whether it's a boy or a girl. We live in a foolish world. Um, But the question of do your children know that God created them, that is just one example that I just gave you of the clarity that comes from that truth. God existed before your children did. The actions of God are driven by the purposes of God, and the purposes of God preexisted all of us, including our children. The purposes existed before we were created, meaning we don't have any say or any vote. It's not a democracy. I know this is obvious. I'm going to draw this all into the implications into your parenting. But for the action of God, we wouldn't be here. Our origins are meager and inconsequential from dust, right? And Genesis 3.18 says, From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. Right? Um, Your children, therefore, are a subset of a grander plan and a grander purpose. They are not the center of the universe. Nor are you and I. The creator sets the rules in accordance with his plans and purposes. And in the garden, man rejected that profound truth. It didn't take long to say, yeah, you created us. You told us how we're supposed to live, but we think we know better. Disobedience was defined in Genesis chapter 3, right after creation was done. We serve a big God. We are created by a big God, and in spite of that bigness, for some amazing reason, your child is at the center of God's love. And so are you and I, because it says that God sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life, to be murdered for our redemption, to be raised again, and to return to sit at the right hand of God so that we could have salvation so that we could be reconciled to God. That's love. That's amazing love. That's profound, life-changing truth. And there's a lot more we could say about the battle for creation, if you will. The battle should not be a battle. It's not about science. It's not about the scientific method. It's really a battle for the, rec- the recognition that you and I are created beings. The creator, by definition, is all-powerful, all-controlling, majestic, awe-inspiring, above all other authority, magnificent beyond our ability to describe. What am I talking about here? Do your children know, by the time they leave your home, will they know, I mean know, that God created them? What comes out of that is the fear of God. That's really what I'm talking about. You hear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? This is the beginning of the process of understanding who God is and what he's done. And it has profound impact on, our, on your life and my life and on, it should on our children's life. There's some things you're trying to teach your children that come right out of this truth. I would imagine you're trying to teach your children humility. You want to produce a humble son or a humble daughter when they leave your home. Well, it goes right back to Genesis one. God created us. God is big, and I am small. I love Isaiah forty. It's one of my. Fa- it probably is my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. It lays out the story of a very big God, and by the way, in verse eleven, it lays out the intimate closeness of the shepherd with his sheep. But humility. I can rail against God's rules, or even try to live against them. But I will not find peace or happiness doing that because you cannot live against the Creator's rules and do well. Worship. I would imagine you're trying to create um, adults from your home who worship the Lord, who fear the Lord. Human beings are created to be worshipers. All too often, teenagers want to worship at the altar of social media, movies, movies, um, games, friends, you teach the truth that God created them and this directs your child's focus. Psalm eight five says, let us praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and we were created. There is the link. God created us, therefore we worship him. That's the link. Wisdom. It's eminently wise to obey your creator, isn't it? If if your creator says this is how you should live, I think it's wise to live accordingly. Let me say it the other way. It's incredibly foolish to believe that you're smarter, better, or wiser than your creator. Think about the foolishness of that. And yet that's the wisdom of the world. And James calls that earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom. Take them back to the truth that they are created, and they are created in the image of God. They are loved by God. They are created by that God, and they must be reconciled with God. Obedience, the very essence of disobedience is traced back to creation. It's the rejection of God's purposes and his perfect design, and we do it today. And it's accelerating in our culture today, a complete rejection of the concept that we are created beings Because if you can wipe that out, you have eliminated any obligation to obey that God. That's the pool we're throwing our children into. That's the pool we're all swimming in. Your children must know when they leave your home that God created them, and we'll call that the fear of God. They need to know God. And it starts back at creation This is the starting point of parenting. And if there's one verse I want you to walk out with today, it's Psalm 111, 10. If you're taking notes, just write down this reference. Here is the essence of parenting in one verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You want wise children? Teach the fear of God. You want obedient children? Teach the fear of God. You want children who worship God, teach the fear of God. It's all in this verse. The beginning of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. Or wisdom, have all those who do his commandments. What is another way to say doing his commandments? Obedience. You want children who know how to obey, teach them the fear of God. That's how profound Genesis 127 is. God breathed life into us. He created us. And then Psalm 111.10, the next phrase says, His praise endures forever. You teach the fear of the Lord it's the being of wisdom. Wisdom have those who do um, His commandments. His praise endures forever. It's all wrapped up right there. If you want one verse to memorize as a parent, particularly in the teen years, to keep you focused, there it is. It's really good if you have young children, too, because it all applies. So regardless of your child's ultimate spiritual condition, you must teach them about God. To love God's wisdom and to be obedient to God, all of that could lead to salvation, but it doesn't save them. Just to remind you. And here's some comfort for you. There's common grace for those who obey God, who live according to His design but have not given themselves, given their hearts to Christ. Psalm 128.1 says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. I know you want your children saved, but don't you want them happy and at peace? Teach them God's rules, to live according to those rules. And it starts with you and I, the parents. Proverbs fourteen twenty six says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The word his is not capitalized. It's not talking about God's children. It's talking about your children. Your children and my children will have refuge in the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. It's so important to teach your children the fear of God, who God is, what he's done. And it starts with, and is foundational at the level of, do they know that they were created by God? I promise you, wherever you put your kids in school, they will be told the opposite. It is your job and my job. You want to be obedient? I want to be obedient. Teach my child they are a created being. By a powerful God and a loving God. And a God with whom they must be reconciled. All right, number three. Number three. Your children, when they leave your home, do they, will they know the value of wisdom? Will they know the value of wisdom? And I've already said that the um, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But they, they know the value of wisdom. And the first element of that is you and me as parents. Do you show them wise living? Not in perfection, but in direction. The fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. But the point here is, to go a little bit deeper, is not just to teach wisdom. We don't just teach them how to think. The Bible makes clear that we need to teach them to pursue wisdom. Not just be wise, but to pursue wisdom. Proverbs four seven says, The beginning of wisdom is... Acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. There is no time limit to this. This never ends. This is particularly relevant to those of us who are parents. We're never done acquiring wisdom. I hope you've never finished that pursuit. Your children need to see that you are seeking wisdom, and by your example, they see the importance and the relevance of the pursuit of wisdom. Show them by your own habits and curiosities what it looks like to pursue wisdom. That's maturity. And there's common grace again. Regardless of your children's profession of faith, the Bible makes clear that good things come to those who pursue wisdom. Proverbs 19.8 says, He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. There is not a bad end to pursuing wisdom. And there's deeper disciplines of wisdom that the Bible tells us even more pro, that will more profoundly assist them. And the lack of these, what I call, disciplines of wisdom will hamper them when they leave your home. The discipline of purpose. Are your teenagers being prepared when they leave your home to be planners, to think beyond tomorrow, to set goals? Do they understand the difference between a goal and a dream? If I say my goal is to play in the NBA someday, you're all going to laugh at me. Why? Because I'm not going to be in the NBA. That's a dream. That's not a goal. If I say my goal is to be a medical doctor someday, you can laugh at me if I'm not pursuing medical school and training and studying and getting work experience. That's a dream. A goal is when your teenager says, this is what I want to do with my life. Do they understand the concept that those are nice words, but outside of effort and planning, those are empty words? I might even say foolish. Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Purposeful living, planning. Proverbs 6. Um, it is a father teaching his sons, and he says, go to the ant, oh, what? Have you ever thought about that? Who's he calling a sluggard? Yeah, don't go home and do that today. <laughs> Think about that. But the point of going to the aunt's son, oh, sluggard, observe her ways and be what? Wise. Wise. And it goes through the whole scenario of planning, 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 working now for the future. That's wisdom. How about decision-making? Is your teenager being prepared to make decisions, whether it's which school, what major, which church, which boy, which girl am I going to marry, what kind of car? Life is full of decisions. Do they know how to make a decision? Have you allowed them to live the consequences of bad decisions? If you haven't, then they make decisions flippantly, and someday that's going to catch up with them. Friends, do they know the value of a good friend? Do they know the danger of a bad friend? Do they know in the Bible that the issue of friends is not social association, it is influence? Do they understand that the wisdom in Proverbs is that you pick your friends, you don't let them pick you? Because it's not you're picking who you spend time with, it's you're picking who you're going to allow to shape and mold your thinking. That's wisdom. Curiosity, I've mentioned this. Do they know that humility and curiosity must correlate correlate with getting wisdom and pursuing the knowledge of God, both of which are the pursuits for life. Can't tell you how many college guys I talk to who have zero curiosity about anything. (laughs) Blows me away. And if they're not curious about anything, those aren't the uh, young men who have been trained to go get wisdom. They're not curious about who won the baseball game, and they're certainly not curious about how then should I live teaching our children curiosity, training that into them? Um, do they understand that wisdom is the pursuit for the rest of their life? Have you taught them James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let them what? Yes. Ask of God. So their pursuit of wisdom should start with God, and by the way, it goes on to say he gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a prayer that's going to be answered. They need to be t- dependent on the Lord for wisdom. Do they know the difference between wisdom from above and that which is earthly, natural, and de- uh, demonic? James three thirteen to 18 is a phenomenal passage to walk through with a teenager. Making a decision about who should I pursue to get wisdom do they understand the difference between a fool and a wise man? Proverbs 1, 20, through the end of the chapter, draws this distinction, and it's a really simple distinction. It's pretty profound. A wise person seeks what? Anybody know? A rebuke. Have you trained your children that it is admirable and profitable to be rebuked? So many people come out of their homes, go to college, and they're blown away when they get a fail on their paper. I don't know if they still do that in college anymore, actually. <laughs> they have never been rebuked, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't see that as, "That's an act of love, that's for their good. That person's actually for you." World's full of fools. They hate rebukes, will avoid rebukes. Proverbs 1 talks about how they refuse, neglect, turn away, reject, and spurn um, reproof and rebuke. A wise man seeks it, asks for it. It's a good thing for mom and dad to think about in their own lives. Are they demonstrating that? Consequences. The wisdom of consequences. you got to let them feel consequences. Failure called by are caused by foolishness at five is far better than 15. And that's even better than 25. Foolishness is corrected by consequences. Proverbs 29:15 says, "The rod and reproof give wisdom. The rod and what? Reproof. That's consequences. That's life. That's what gives you wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs. Yes, Proverbs 29:15. Do they know failure? Have you trained your children with the practical wisdom of failure? I know that's hard to hear. I know that's hard to watch. We did it. It's not easy, but it's biblical. And it's good for them. There's no motivation for success if there's no risk of failure. And if they can learn that in your home, you are serving them well. You are closing the gap. Because I promise you, as an employer even, that people who don't understand that when they walk into the, uh, into the work world or the school world are in for a rude, rude awakening. Prepare your your teenager do they know the value of wisdom there's a lot more we could say on that let's just keep going number four have they learned obedience before your children leave your home have they learned obedience not just to obey not just to obey but to be obedient ephesians 6 1 parents favorite verse children what Obey your parents. Um, The flip side of that is parents must teach their children obedience. This is not optional. At the beginning of life, you must require your children to obey you. If you have not done that in your home, somehow you have to get back there. If you have your Bible, I want to show you something. Open to Proverbs chapter 1. I just want to... Make sure you understand this. You must require your children to obey you, to listen to you, to do what you say. And while you're turning to Proverbs 1, just a reminder that what you tell them to do and, what, and the ways you tell them to obey need to be from the scripture and be biblical. But watch this, Proverbs 1 Verse 8, hear my son, my father's instruction, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's instruction. Chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Chapter 3, verse 1, we're going fast, aren't we? My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, verse 1. Do you see a pattern here? Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father and give attention that you may gain understanding. This goes right back to the last point. Another source of wisdom is mom and dad. They need to understand that. They need to listen and hear what you're saying. Verse 2 of chapter 4, For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Verse 10 of chapter 4, Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Verse 20 of chapter 4, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Chapter 5, verse 1, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Verse 7 of chapter 5, Now then, my sons, listen and do not depart from the words of my mouth. That is in the context of that. Father goes on to describe um, The um, um, goes on to describe the father's teaching on love, sex, and purity. I challenge you to read chapter five to your children sometime. It's hard to do in places. It's graphic, it's blunt, it's tender, it's intense, it's intimate, and it's required. And we can't forget that it is our role to speak of those things, and it is our children's responsibility to hear to listen, to obey. And we could keep going. Um, we'll stop there. The first seven chapters of Proverbs are incredible. So, I mean, it's the, you want to deal with the issue of money, you want to deal with the issue of friends, you want to deal with the issue of family, you want to deal with the issue of uh, um, um, morality, sexual purity. It's all in Proverbs 1 through 7, and it is a father teaching his sons. Mom and dad, you want to know how to do it, how to teach that stuff, how to talk about it? It's right here. But in the midst of all of that, you must require them to learn obedience. And ultimately, the the obedience you're teaching them temporarily is to you. Ultimately, it's to who? To God. Okay? So, do you understand that you can't save your children? By the time your children leave your home, will they know that God created them? And the implications of that. Will they know the value of wisdom? Will they have learned obedience to God? Number four, I'm sorry, number five, will your sons understand the implications of being a man? Will your sons understand the implications of being a man? And number six, by the way, is do your daughters understand the implications of being a woman? And if you want to keep coming back, the next two weeks we're going to deal with that in great depth um next week's session we're going to talk about sons raising uh, men and the week following we're going to talk about daughters but do your sons understand the implications of being a man and this used to be a pretty simple question wasn't a big deal and our world has gone crazy a boy becomes a man and a boy is a boy when a boy arrives in fact a boy is a boy before they arrive god created them a boy our job is to take that boy and produce a man. Okay? It's really exciting. It's fun. We'll spend a lot more time on that next week. But basically, in Genesis chapter 2, it lays out what a biblical man looks like. Not what a Christian man looks like, but what a man, according to God's creation before sin entered the world, why did he create a human being as a man as opposed to a human being as, opposed, as, uh, as a woman? And it really comes down to three things. The man is called primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to be a leader, a provider, and a protector in the context of the home. And he's called to love his wife. And the most basic social construct that that our creator designed, the family, that is the man's role. That is what your little boy needs to be prepared to do before, I would say, before he leaves your home. Which means if you have a 15-year-old, you've got two years to go. Right? Do your daughters know what a real man is? Dads, this is on us. Do they see it at home? Do they understand the implications in their life of marrying a biblical man? So this isn't just for the boys, it's for the girls. Do your sons understand the implications of being a man Number six, do your daughters understand the implications of being a woman that in the garden before sin entered the world, God designed females as females with a specific purpose and a beautiful design, roles that they could fulfill that a man can never fulfill, regardless of what you read in the news. They are to be a wife, a mom, and the sustainer and keeper of the home wildly unpopular to say that today that's God's design and we'll spend um, more time on that in the next couple weeks um, on what the implications of that is And, and a woman being created to be a wife and a mom and a keeper at home is not exclusive that's not all that is at its core what God has created a woman to be and whatever else is added on top of that is added on top of that But that's the core of it. Number seven. Another one that has become controversial, and I'm blown away by this. But number seven. Your teenagers, when they leave your home, do they understand that God created them for marriage? Do they understand that God created them for marriage? Again, not only for marriage. I'm an accountant. The fact is, I'm married, but I happen to be an accountant. Your son, obviously, there's no question, some will, according to God's will, for them not get married. There is a gift of singleness, very easy to define, and based on the definition of 1 Corinthians 7, it doesn't really happen that often. Your parenting should be driven in the direction of preparing your son or your daughter to be married. Okay, Your assumption should and could safely be that they will be married and that that is by the creator's design. And your parenting should be done accordingly. Your son or daughter walking the aisle someday, and that might cause you cold sweats right now. <laughs> it does me too, and it's already happened twice. <laughs> uh, just walking that aisle doesn't mystically... Qualify them to be a godly husband or a godly wife. That starts in your home. And I don't say that. Again, I'm not throwing burdens on you. I'm giving you opportunity to get your teenagers prepared for when they leave your home that they're ready for life. According to God's design. There's only one time that God said his creation was not good. And that's when he said it's not good for man to be what? alone there's exceptions to that but marriage is the grace of life it is a gift from the creator to an undeserving world but that is what god has created men and women to do to come together to be married first corinthians eleven nine says for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake but woman for the man's sake feminists hate that verse because they don't understand that verse. That verse, in the context of Genesis is that Adam was incomplete, and that God created Eve as a gift to Adam, as a gift to men, that by ourselves and I expect a loud amen when I'm done with this ends but by ourselves, men, we can't do life. Amen? amen? What a gift. Marriage is such a gift. And that wasn't a whoops in creation, by the way. That wasn't a design flaw that slipped by the uh, architect in heaven. That was by his perfect will and design created into Adam, and it was filled majestically and creatively and spectacularly with Eve. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve. It's for all of God's creation. That is in your child's future. You need to parent accordingly. Remember that those God-given roles were pre-fall. It's part of God's perfect design. In other words, being a wife is not part of the curse. (laughs) Telling your your boy that he's going to be a leader someday, and by the way, I don't care, and we hear it all the time from young men, I'm not a leader, I'm never going to be a leader. Something went horribly wrong for that young man to understand that. That's an implication of this truth, that if you understand your little boy is going to be a dad someday, he doesn't, it's not optional whether he's going to be a leader. It's what God's created him to be. As parents, we need to train into our sons the skills and the understanding of leadership in the context of the home. Okay? Okay. Hebrews 13 says that marriage is to be held in honor among all, and that includes teenagers. When they leave your home, do they understand that God created them for marriage, with some exceptions? There's no question there's exceptions. You all heard of Clayton Erb, right? (laughs) There are exceptions. And if you understand the end, marriage, it helps clarify and animate your goals as a parent, Honoring marriage and how you and I live to demonstrate it for our kids and, and in what we say and what we teach and our purpose in parenting, that's all preparation. That's all preparing to mine that gap, close the gap. Not to um, be shocked when they walk out into a cold world. Okay? So do your children understand that you, um, or do you understand that you cannot save your children? Do they know that God created them? Do they know the value of wisdom? Have they been taught to be obedient? Do your sons understand the implications of being a man? Do your daughters understand the implication of being a woman? And do they understand that God created them, with rare exception, to be married someday? And then number eight, do you understand that your children will eventually no longer be bound to obey you? Do you, do you understand that your children someday will no longer be bound by Scripture to obey you? This might be surprising to some of you. Some of you, uh, um, I've heard dads quote um, Colossians three twenty: "Children, be obedient to your parents in all things." And they change that really to mean for all time. That's not biblical. By the way, your child, depending on where they're at in the teen year structure or or spectrum, your child either already knows that they're not required to obey you someday and they're looking forward to it desperately (laughs) or they're going to figure it out. And the reason I bring this up, and uh, we're going to close on this question, is because this is the source of enormous contention in the teen years. And I want to walk through how to navigate this um, so that it is not enormous tension, that it, there is preparation, there is planning, and there's purpose in seeing that someday they are not required to obey you. So how are you going to get to that point? At the beginning of life, there's no question, children are required. I just spent a few minutes on this. They must what? Obey you. And you must what? Require it. You must require their obedience. They must learn that obedience. Once that's done, there is a process of letting go. You know the, the verse, Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. This is Ephesians 6.1. Honor your father and mother. Let me talk about those two just briefly. At the beginning of life. Let's talk about the beginning of life and then the end of life. The end of life, yes. The beginning of life. We have a few new grandbabies in our family. It's pretty cool. And one of the observations you can make is that when that new little baby comes home and you lay them in, the, uh, in their cradle, they have absolutely no ability to disobey you, do they? You lay them down and you say, stay. What are they going to do? <laughs> stay. You say, eat. They're going to eat. They, they have no ability to obey. They have no capacity to honor They're just looking to survive, okay? Well, what happens as they get older, first of all, the obedience issue changes really fast, doesn't it? As fast as they can, they learn how to disobey. And as they go through life, honor becomes a concept that's trained in them, okay, First Peter two seventeen, for example, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That is where you teach your children honor. And we've already talked about teaching obedience. Now let's go to the end of life. Let me just ask you practically, because this is usually the best way to get here. How many of you call your parents and ask them if it's okay for you to stay out past ten o'clock? Anybody? Nobody? Are you all in sin? Have you ever thought about why you don't do that? It's a practical approach to it, but let's look at it um, biblically. Christ in, in the New Testament, when he was talking to the Pharisees, he never when he was laying out the commands that they were not obeying, he was showing them their need for a Savior. In almost every case when he does that, he talks about honor your father and mother. He never talks about obey your mother and father. Why? Because he was talking to and teaching adult men. And Jesus never quotes the command to obey parents, but he always quoted the command to honor parents. Because there isn't a requirement at some point to obey parents. So obviously the relationship with your child will change. At the end of life, obedience is not the issue. You can neither require it nor expect it. And you should not want to. What we're talking about now, I understand is difficult, but this is a process that you should look forward to where they are no longer calling you, saying, can I be out past 10 o'clock? Amen? When does it change, though? When does it change? So all kinds of, uh, what's that? 40? 40? Yeah. No, 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 no. You know, I, I'm going to change my notes. What? Um, this is kind of like, when can my child date? Anybody dealing with that question? Well, there's all kinds of answers to that. The, the common answer when we had teenagers was when they're 16. Um, of course, in my household, it was 30, not 40. <laughs> Didn't work out so well. Um, or uh, they can date when they go to college or... Um, whatever none of those are in the Bible, and that 's to illustrate the the question. So when does the requirement that your children must obey you end and some of the answers i 've heard is when they 're twenty one forty, <laughs> college graduation, uh, when they move out of the house when i 'm no longer paying their bills. <laughs> When they get married, do any of these resonate with you? I would imagine I just covered the gamut of some of what most of you think is the end of when they're required to obey you. And then there's never. (laughs) Children, obey your parents for all time. Is any of that biblical? Is any of it practical? Is any of that helpful? Have you ever thought about this? If you have if you're parenting teens, you need to start thinking about this. If you're parenting children who you think might survive to teenage years, <laughs> you need to be thinking about this. Here's the answer the Bible does not say, which says a number of things. There's some freedom in this. Okay? There's also differences. Child number one, it might be at one age, and child number two might be at a different age. This isn't easy. Wouldn't it be nice to open the Bible and say, there it is. This is where you and I need to be going back to James 1 and praying, Lord, give me wisdom. And the issue should be this. The issue is maturity, not circumstances. It's maturity, not life circumstances. The goal, though, that I want to present to you should be that this happens before they leave your house. Why? Because they're going to really mess up. When they start making all their own decisions, they're going to make bad decisions, aren't they? Come on. You know. You want them to make that in your home, in that context where you can teach and train, observe. Not, not um, make fun of them, not put them down, not call them out, but to help them. You need to be for them. The determination of the requirement to obey you um, can be driven by you or by your child. And when it's driven by the child, we see this all the time, it becomes, it's marked by tension, uncertainty, anger, emotion. It starts to look like rebellion. When the child is actually going through a process that's natural and ordained by God, that there is a point where they separate from the need to obey mom and dad. A process that's driven by you means it's dr- driven by the right people. You're mature. You're wiser. You're purposeful. You're encouraging. You're preparing them for life, and you're reminding them constantly, I am for you. I am not opposed to you. I am, I am for you. Okay? So, <clears throat> something to think about. If you have teenage children who profess faith in Christ, you need to consider that maybe you stop talking to them about obeying mom and dad and start talking to them about obeying who? God. If you have children who come to Christ in their teen years or before, that is a wonderful gift. Because the the um, point of contention is no longer you're not doing what I told you to do You're not living in accordance with who you say you are. We need to talk about that. Okay? And that is an easier transition, and I recognize that, and that doesn't apply to everybody in this room. But for those of you with children who claim to be saved, it is a golden opportunity to remove the obligation for them to obey you and to call them constantly to obedience to Christ. Okay? So when appropriate, you look to grant freedom rather than withhold it, the freedom to make decisions. As they demonstrate maturity, you honor them by granting more independence with accountability, and as they do well and earn trust, more freedom is granted. It is a loosening. You are looking for reasons to grant them independence, not reasons to clamp down on them and take it away. And I know that's a change in thinking, If you have five year olds, we're not talking to you right now. You understand that, right? I don't want wild things happening out there saying, uh, I learned this at church. (laughs) And you also know, once you give it away, you give away territory, it's very, very difficult to claim it back, isn't it? And that dynamic is a great dynamic to talk to your children about. You tell them, this is what's coming, this is what's happening. This is what just happened. Teach, 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 train, talk about it. Let me illustrate it this way. When will you give your children the keys to your car? Never? (laughs) Is it going to be 16 because the law says so? If that's what guides your uh, decision-making at the risk of sounding like I'm calling you a name, that's kind of foolish, right? Right? There are heavy-duty consequences to handing the keys to a really immature 16-year-old. It is great fun to hand the keys to a mature, responsible 16-year-old and still lose sleep at night, but to have the confidence um, that you can trust them. And why would you not tell them that? And it's not manipulation. It is... Look, when you demonstrate maturity and understanding of responsibility, I am looking forward to giving you the keys to the car. I want you to experience life. And again, I know most of you are doing this. This is how you think. I'm affirming that the Bible is silent on a lot of things, and handing off and transitioning to adulthood is one that it is somewhat silent on, but that there is... um, practicality, keep your eye on what the end result is going to be and start driving towards that now. Think about when you want your child to stop asking for permission. The day is coming when they no longer need your permission and they might not even seek your wisdom. Consider when that will be. You determine when that will be. You drive that. Better that that you open the door and say, You don't have to ask me permission anymore, than waiting for them to push through it. Because they will push through it. Some of you pushed through it. Some of you think um, it would be great and wonderful if your children keep asking for permission forever. It's a sign of a submissive child that they continually come to me for permission to do life, and it might be, but it's even more an opportunity to teach and discipline. Always asking parents for approval is, is a luxury. We always tell um, high school students, when they, they wanna talk about what they wanna do, the first question we would always ask them is what do your parents say? You might be glad to know that. <laughs> that when your kids go in our youth department, one of the things that they hear often is one way to know whether you're in God's will is whether your, parent, your parents approve, whether they've given their approval. And that's appropriate at that age. But at some point, that's a little weird, isn't it? Right, I'll go back to how many of you call your parents and ask. Asking for the parent's approval too long can be dangerous. It becomes a crutch. It puts something between them and whose approval they really need and whose is that gods. And that's ultimately where they're going. At some point, they must make their own decisions and live with the consequences, good and bad. And wouldn't that transition best happen when you are there, intimately involved to teach and to train, to guide and to encourage? I remember uh, with one of our daughters, it didn't happen till college. And I I tell you, I don't tell these stories because we did it right all the time. Sometimes we missed. But I remember vividly one of our daughters where I said, I will, she asked for permission to do something. She was in college, and I said, I'm not going to give you my permission. I'm not going to forbid it either. You just, we just crossed a line together. Um, you get to make that decision. You can ask me for my wisdom, but you no longer get to ask me for my permission. I remember the time vividly with all three girls where we got there. And it's a great moment. It's not a negative. One of them cried, I think, when we did that. <laughs> and by the way, be prepared. They may not, they won't come and ask for permission anymore, but they might not come and ask for your wisdom. And sometimes they might come and ask for your wisdom and then do what? Yeah. The opposite. <laughs> okay? Uh, it drives you to your knees. But it's like the day I used to coach football. I'll never forget the first Friday night. I had to stop at the white chalk line and watch these 11 high school kids run on the field and either really embarrass me and the rest of the coaching staff or do really, really well. That's parenting. And the, my, I guess what I want to encourage you with this eighth question, do you understand your children will eventually be no longer bound to obey you, is are you anticipating Friday night? Are you defining that Friday night? And are you talking to them about game night? And are you preparing them for game night? And then when you get to game night, do you stop at the chalk line? And trust the Lord and trust that what you've done and how you've taught and what you've trained, it's been biblical in obedience to God's word, and they're going to go do life. Will they disappoint you? Sometimes. But I will tell you, overall, it's one of the greatest joys of life. And to even watch them exceed you. So give all of this some thought. Pray about it. If you have a 7-year-old, this, this is way off. If you have a 17-year-old, this conversation may be overdue. Don't have it this afternoon, though. Again, please. <laughs> Think about it. Pray about it. Look at God's word. Be on the same page, mom and dad. Even if it's a single parent home, if it's at all possible for the mother and the father to be on the same page, anticipate it. Talk about it as it's happening. Mark it when it happens. Be purposeful with your teenager. Start talking to them about what is coming in life as a positive. It is a good thing. It may be a scary world sometimes, but all of this is God-ordained, God-designed, and it is good. So enjoy these years. The teen years are great. Um, They're more mental than physical, though, aren't they? Trying to think through all of this. Have fun. Be purposeful in your fun. Talk to your sons and daughters. Tell them what's coming. Tell them what's here. And uh, I pray that the Lord blesses you with um, a great result by his grace. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for our children. We, um, it's humbling to be a parent, and it is an amazing experience to watch from the front um, lines what the Lord, what you do and what you will do. Lord, we again pray for the salvation of children, and once they're saved, Lord, may you show us the transition to them obeying you and answering to you. And give these parents the wisdom and grace to know how and when to let go of that and to step back and to watch them become full adults, even within our home, before they leave. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.